Once upon a time, there were three writers. They stole a prompt, uttered in real life, and ran with it. Wilkie, hit the theme tune. Prompted. That was wonderful. Well, I'm sorry it's just me on the, on the show with you today. Um, that was a bit of an unfortunate event. My, my bit was pre-recorded. I'm not actually here. Uh, oh, okay, it's just me then. Well, okay, so Izzy and Bella had a bit of a fight over who owned Prompted. They challenged each other to a duel. They went off armed with quips and uh, descriptive writing techniques and some grammar jokes, and I've not seen them since. So I'm here in the studio with Wilkie's recorded voice. Bella, you're a tree. Sorry? What was that, Izzy? You're a tree with bark that's rotting and covered in ants. Don't make me angry, Izzy. I'll hex you. I'll hex you. Go on then. Don't don't test me because I'll I'll ruin your life with this hex, Izzy. I'm not joking, okay? You're really you're really testing me right now. Hex me. That sounded ve- every I'm sorry, that sounded very sexual. <laughs> Hexual, if you will. Hexual. Hey. I despair of all of you. So Erin's now one prompted and decided to invite Wilkie along. Hello. Okay, so my first action as heir of this show is going to be that there must be a sci-fi piece every single week. That's now mandatory. We're going to start making first contact with aliens. It'll be great. The prompt this week is... Drum roll, please. (laughs) You like dystopias, (laughs) right? Yeah, but not living in them. So how did everyone find the prompt? I wrote it an hour ago. I, f- I found it by having it be sent to me by Erin. It was it was it was interesting. I, I managed to get something out of it, which I think is good. This um rather ironically, this came from the night when lockdown was announced and we were watching it on TV and my dad just turns to me and goes, Oh, you like dystopias, right? In a sort of jokey way, trying to make light of the situation. And just my response was, yeah, but not living in them. But that's where that one came from. Yeah, it was. It is such a different world in lockdown. So I like that. That's that. It came from quite a real sort of dystopian time. It is very surreal at the moment. The prompt came from when lockdown was announced, and we're now three and something months deep in lockdown. Yay! Just vibing. Always We've vibing. We've finished our assignments for the year, so lockdown's a little bit nicer now. A little now. bit more calm. A little yeah. bit less stressful. Mm. So let's go on to my response to the prompts. I call it nursery. This is a straight up dystopia, kind of cheating on the genre that the prompt suggested. The weaker saplings wither into the powdered earth, leaving the strong to climb the night sky. Rose takes a trowel with her everywhere, in case she sees a small sapling worth saving. She spent her early years on her hands and knees, rehoming all the struggling plants in her clearing. But she's nine now, and old enough to know not everything can be saved. One of the saplings is orange, with white leaves. It flickers behind a river a few miles north of her clearing. Rose throws her trowel and satchel to the other side of the water, then searches among the foot of the saplings for a rock. The trees are taller here, nearly reaching her shoulders. The rock she finds is too heavy to carry, so she rolls it down the bank and into the water. It sinks into the sludge. Use mine! Ashley shouts from the other side of the river. Rose walks upstream to where Ashley points and hops over the stones peeking out from the water. Ashley kneels next to the bright sapling. Her honey-coloured hair drips into the orange as she blows it softly. Rose loops her satchel around her neck and picks up her trowel. I'll dig it up, she says, plunging her tool into the powder around it. Careful, Ashley says, pushing Rose away. It stung me just now. Red blisters swell on the palm of Ashley's hand. Rose tips her satchel upside down, 
outpour herbs, ointments, and a glass jar. She shakes the bag to free her teddy bear from the folds of the satchel. Hay peeks out from his seams, and one button eye sits higher than the other. Some of his fur is still soft. Rose hands him to Ashley. Dr. Bear says you need cuddles. Ashley squeezes the doctor in her arms. I don't think it meant to hurt me. I shouldn't have come too close. I don't like it when people get too close. Dr. Bear says you need this. Rose says, wrapping a leaf around the sting and securing it with a reef knot. Father used to warn us about fire. Ashley says, leaning in to blow the roots. He said it's happy to help you as long as you don't touch it. I forgot about that bit. It can help us. Rose asks, enchanted by the way the leaves spiral towards the dark sky. I think so. Father said it helped him all the time. Everyone had a flame. Ashley says, imparting all ten years of her wisdom. Rose can almost see her father's face swimming in the heat. We should look after it. Ashley smiles. We can feed it and keep it warm. Rose digs a circle around the flame, whipping her hand away whenever it grows too hot. She opens her glass jar and pushes the fire inside with the end of her trowel. The flame doesn't like the lid on, until Ashley uses a dark stick to poke holes in the plastic with her uninjured hand. It glows in the glass like a star. Dr. Bear thinks it's hungry, Rose says, searching the saplings for fruit. What does it eat? Ashley pulls a sugar cube from her fraying pocket and opens the jar. She makes Dr. Bear hold the cube in his paws. He gives the flame a wonky stare and feeds it. The fire turns its nose up at the cube and swallows Dr. Bear whole. Rose screams. The flame licks Ashley's fingers, so she throws what's left of Dr. Bear into the river. Rose cries as he hisses goodbye. I'm sorry, Ashley says, rubbing her sister's back. Rose sobs into her skirts. Can we put it back? Ashley shuts the lid on the jar and cradles it. Why don't I keep it safe and you can find food for it? It liked Dr. Bear's hay. It killed him. Ashley sets the jar down and runs to the water. She fishes Dr. Bear's charred face out of the sludge. His button eyes are curled and melted. His body is warm ash. Rose is unable to look at him. I'll find a new body. Ashley says, stuffing his remains in Rose's satchel. If you help me look after the flame. Promise I won't have to go near it? Rose says, blowing her nose on her skirt. Promise. The sisters lie in moss beds in their small clearing. The flame flickers between them, keeping the goosebumps off their skin. Puffs of smoke wander into the sky. Aww. That was so sweet. I like that a lot. <laughs> Thanks. When I read this to my boyfriend, when Dr. Bear died, he just looked at me and said, how dare you kill off the bear? <laughs> you killed off the cat first. I did kill off a cat and prompted once, yeah. That's unforgivable. That's the worst crime, the worst offence. This comes from a longer piece and it goes on to see the two growing up and they're still looking after the flame and it tracks their adventures. This is the beginning of a journey. Yeah. Sad almost to sort of see the, the two girls acting like grown-ups, but it, you know, you, you make clear multiple times <laughs> that Rose is nine and Ashley's ten and they're sort of acting like grown-ups because they sort of have to in, in, this, in, in the world that they have grown up in. Yeah. They're, they're forced to be a bit beyond their years. Um, I've seeded in that the powdered earth that they're standing on is actually ash from the previous world. That just made it a lot more sinister. <laughs> it's very sinister. Oh, it gets so dark. Speaking of dark, Bella is the opposite of darkness. <laughs> she is 
a shining, bright person. Let's go into your piece. For those of you who can't see, Bella looks so unimpressed by this comment. <laughs> Izzy's trying so hard. What was that? that? That's me describing you. I feel like that was quite out of character for you, Izzy, considering how you usually treat me. Okay, so what happened in that duel? Did you come to an agreement? Is that why you're being nice to each other? An agreement? <laughs> Disgusting. Um, yeah, so my piece isn't quite as dark as that. It's eco-criticism, but it's also quite... ended up being quite romantic, which wasn't the intention. But here I am again, attempting another go at romance without even meaning to. So, it's it's called Clothes on My Back, and everyone's got their parts, so I'm just going to jump in. Ninra's house was in the mountains, south-facing. It was painted a pale green and had what appeared to be a misshapen shed protruding from its front. From where Wendy was standing, the garden looked like a slope of Filipino rice terraces, filled instead with thickets of lavender and rosemary, all swarming with hives of bees. A wind turbine creaked on the roof. Wendy found Nin herself round the back, peering into a homemade insect farm. She had her teeth gritted and was clicking her tongue slowly. Wendy made sure to scuff her feet on the ground as she approached, so as not to startle her. Nin looked up in her own time. She closed the wooden lid and brushed her hands on her skirt. There was an eye painted in white on her forehead. I thought you were coming tomorrow, she said. Wendy cleared her throat and smiled awkwardly. Surprise. Nin's gaze softened perceptibly. She drifted closer, and Wendy had the impression she was being taken in. She'd worn a slip dress, the colour of terracotta, as she knew Nin liked. You're taller than I imagined, she told Wendy. I never saw your legs in the photos you sent. No timer on a Polaroid. She glanced over Nin's shoulder at the row of insect farms. What were you doing just now? Singing to the crickets, she said, taking Wendy's hand and pulling her over. Inside the box, a colony of crickets thrummed. Their waste falls through the drawer at the bottom. It's a long process, but eventually I can turn it into biofuel. Biofuel? Of course. I don't like to use my truck, but when I have to, I use the biodiesel I make in these farms. She closed the lid again. I sing to them because they're working so hard to make the world a better place. Nin was still holding onto her hand. Wendy clasped her tighter, moving her thumb back and forth. Oh, if you thought like you. Nin laughed. You said in your letters you liked dystopias. Well, yes, as a literature student. The wind cast the smell of Nin's fresh tomato vines over them. I don't particularly want to live in one. Come inside, she said. I'll make us coffee. There was even more greenery in the kitchen. With all the windows open, the house felt just as external as outdoors. A vertical garden was nailed to the wall next to the refrigerator, vivid with herbs and flowers. Nin pulled out a bowl of soaked almonds and put it on the table. These have been soaking for nearly a week, she told Wendy. I was excited for you to come. She rinsed the almonds and pinched the skin off of them. Wendy wandered around the room while she blended them with water and honey. The walls and furniture were all painted in Nin's spiritual style and gave the impression that everything was moving sleepily. There were vines climbing up the chairs, mangoes ripening in acrylic on the table. Nin brought a jug over and began to strain the almonds through a cheesecloth. Her long fingers became soaked in a creamy milk, Wendy wet her lips. The coffee was steaming in a dark oak, strong like Wendy took it. That had been one of the first things Nin had asked her in her letters. 
Morning coffee says a lot about a person, she had written. How long are you staying for? Nin asked Wendy, pushing her feet up against her sandals under the table. They creeped gently up her leg. As long as you'll have me, she answered, taking a large swallow of her coffee. This place is welcome to you, said Nin. If you're willing to learn how I live. Everyone should learn how you live. Nin reached across the table. Her palms were warm and coarse. You don't have a suitcase? No. She brought Nin's hands to her face. They smelt like almonds and wet leaves. Wendy, she whispered, a sound of both loneliness and relief. I'm so glad you're here with me. Aww. That's so cute! Bella, I can't write romance snow. That was adorable. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's better than the last one because I absolutely hated the last <laughs> one. I hated it so much, I can't even tell you. I love the idea. I love the letters. I love that they sort of already have a foundation of knowing each other through the letters. And then is this the first time they actually meet? Yeah, so they've kind of been pen pals, but they've kind of like fallen in love with how each other writes and, you know, they've been sending photos to each other. So they've never met each other in person, but it's kind of blossomed that way. It's catfish, but gone right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good It's a good ending. It, it had this... this- the very like unique energy of simultaneously meeting someone for the first time, but also already being in love with this person. Mm. It's very sweet. Thank you. I also love Bella. And you have this in a lot of your pieces. I love how you describe cooking and food. I, yeah. It's sort of romantically how you describe food. There's always some sort of fresh tomatoes. Yeah, I get quite excited about writing food because um, I really, really enjoy cooking and I find cooking quite spiritual in a way because you're cooking something with intent so you can put your intent into things as you're making it. So when I write cooking, I always end up writing it like really detailed because it's really important every action. Maybe, maybe I'm, a bit of, I'm a little bit of a kitchen witch, let's be... Let's be honest. <laughs> no, I, I noticed that as well, because you could have just said, oh, she took the almonds and, and made them into a, was it like a drink, an almond milkshake? She made them into almond milk, yeah. Yeah. You could have just said that she made the almonds into almond milk, but the, the process was spread out among the conversation, which is obviously how making things really happens. And it just felt much more realistic that she was like, turning around and saying something and then going back to like the next step of process. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Your pieces always remind me of, um, you know those sort of posts they're on like Tumblr or Pinterest or whatever where people kind of go, oh, I just I just want to live in a little cot- cottage on the mountainside with a goat and fresh strawberries. Cottage core. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. that's, I think I think I mentioned this last week, I can't remember, but I just like discovered Cottagecore online and oh my god, why hadn't I found this sooner? Just girls in like white flowy dresses like wandering into fields and picking dandelions and making like dandelion jelly from the dandelions and I'm just like, stop it, you're trying to tease me at this point. Go away. (laughs) What happens when it rains? What do you mean? When it rains and you're picking your dandelions. Well, you just you just sort of walk around dramatically, like um, like Kathy in Wuthering Heights. I had an idea the other day. Wuthering Heights by um, Kate Bush, but the Heathcliff is intonated the same as a uh, uh, Kirk yelling Khan from. <laughs> but like the the Heathcliff. Sort of. Now we can move on. <laughs> so we've just been talking about Aaron's favorite thing. So let's go to. 
Erin's favourite thing she's ever written? It's really not, but sure thing. Um, <laughs> this is supernatural slash horror because I'm in that mood at the minute. Does everyone know what part they are? Yeah. I'm the stupid one, oh, right? You, you are the stupid. <laughs> Please bring as much comedic value to this as you can, Wilkie. That would be wonderful. I'm I'm <sighs> leading the seance, which is exactly what I would do in real life. Let's all just take a moment to appreciate that I'm playing myself. Absolutely. I'm someone losing control, which is what happens when people mutiny imprompted. Excuse me. Was that a veiled threat? I don't think there was any veiling of that threat at all. No, that was just a threat. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, before Izzy decides to stop the mutiny, let's begin. Um, This is a short film, by the way. Interior, room, night. A seance is taking place. Robin is at its head, shouting a Latin chant. Amari and Reese sit next to them, repeating Robin's words in a murmur. The other members of the seance look around, wide-eyed. The heavy curtains billow outwards in a sudden wind. An eerie scream blasts through the room. Robin's eyes roll back into their head. We zoom in on the Ouija board as a frantic message is spelled out. Cut to the same room later. The same Ouija board a few minutes later. It looks a lot more battered now that the light has been turned on. The table suddenly jolts. Oh, my head! We zoom out to see the whole room. All the seance members have left, except Robin and Amari. Reese crawls out from under the table, holding their head. You need to be more careful. I am careful. Reese puts a strong magnet on the table before flipping over the Ouija board. There is an identical magnet stuck to its base. They look up to see Amari removing a hidden fan from behind the curtains. Robin, what's the haul? Robin tips a silk bag of money onto the table. Looks like everyone paid full price. Tips too. Go on then, hand over. Fifty for me, thirty for you, twenty for Reese. Hey, I worked hard. You promised you'd help me find a more convincing incantation. And did you? Well... No, but I did other stuff on the way here. Like what? I drove for a while. You drove for six miles, tops. I did the rest while you fell asleep in the passenger seat. And Robin's right, that incantation was creepy. It was proper Latin, not Reese's junk. My incantations are not junk. You had me swearing to worship the god of cats in the last one. Oh, you actually noticed that. I, I thought you just memorised whatever Latin jargon you could find and then did the weird eye thing. Robin rolls their eyes up into their head. Reese recoils. Yeah. Amar- <laughs> Amari laughs and throws an arm around their shoulders. How about we split our percent of the cash if you drive us back to the hotel? No, we're leaving tonight. Less chance of the customers catching on to the thefts. Amari and Reese look up, grinning. Really? What did you get? Robin empties their pockets onto the table. There are two wallets, a purse, and an expensive-looking bracelet, which lands on the Ouija board. Robin focuses on the board. It begins to shake, ever so slightly. Amari and Reese are talking about routes to the next hotel, but their voices become muffled. They don't notice Robin's hands fall slack by their sides, or their eyes rolling back, until a low, strange moan comes from their throat. Robin? Robin does not respond. Amari waves a hand in front of their vacant eyes. Robin, stop joking around. Let's just pack up and go. Robin's hand reaches out blindly and lands on the Ouija board. 
Amari tries to shift the board away, but Robin lurches with it, keeping their fingertips planted firmly on its surface. Robin? Robin's hand begins to shift across the board, frantically marking out letters. The curtains move in a wind that cannot be possible. The light above them sparks and smashes into shards of glass. When Robin speaks, their voice is unnatural and strange. We see the three who trade in lies. Robin Carlyle, Amari Bello, Reese Francis. They shove the board. It flies across the table and hits the wall, cracking the plaster before falling to the floor. Robin blinks. It is over. What was that? Amari and Reese glance at each other. Get in the car. Amari grabs Robin's arm and hauls them towards the door. Interior, car, night. Amari is driving, gripping the pa- steering wheel tightly. Robin is shaking the passenger seat. Reese sits in the back. They push their head into the front of the car. How did... No. They move back into the car, sit for a moment, then stick their head forward again. So it wasn't a joke? The others don't respond. Reese moves back and starts to babble. So that... that wasn't real, right? Because that Latin wasn't a real incantation. It was, it was just gibberish, wasn't it? And... Is the hotel the other way? Amari slams on the brakes, sending Reese flying as far forward as their seatbelt will allow. Ugh! Robin gets out of the car, leaving the front door open. We see them pass the front of the car, head straight to the side of the road. Amari and Reese are both staring straight ahead, seemingly in shock. Neither of them move as they listen to Robin throw up. Should we go... I don't know, help? Stay in the car. Right. Robin passes in front of the car. They get in their seat and close the door behind them. That thing knew our names. There is a long pause. Then Robin runs out the car to throw up again. Amari leans their head on the steering wheel. The horn blares, but they don't move. Reese stares at them from the back seat. Cut to black. Damn. Spooky. I love that. I love that. This was annoyingly compressed because I was picturing it as, like, the first episode of a TV series. So this would be a lot longer. Like, there would be a lot more stuff of them actually doing seances and then robbing people. And then Mm. that weird bit would be at the end. So it wouldn't be as loads of stuff in a few pages. Uh, That was really interesting. I I like how how sort of naturally it is revealed that they're really Mm. scamming people. And so sort of we go from thinking it was real to just very matter-of-factly they move on to... Right, how much money do we make from our scam? And then, even more than that, they're actually picking people's pockets as well and that sort of thing. It's going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> it reminds me, have you seen Ghost, Aaron? Have I seen Ghost? Yeah, uh, with the pottery. I haven't seen it, no. Oh, the, oh, the sexy pottery film, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a scene where, that so obviously, the guy's a ghost, not too much of a spoiler there. And he goes to a seance and there's this, he just watches this woman who is Whoopi Goldberg fake it and then actually spooks her. And so she's, one minute she's faking it, but then she realizes she actually does have the gift. And that's what that reminded me of. (laughs) So I've copied from a really old film that I've never seen. That's annoying. Gosh, Aaron, be original. (laughs) No, you did did it in a different way. It's okay, all good. Would, out of curiosity... Would anyone here ever actually do a seance and do and use like a Ouija board? A Ouija no. board. A Ouija board. <laughs> I can't be the only person who who read it as Woja for like years. 
Woja. That's how it's spelled. <laughs> it isn't. That isn't how it's, it's spelled. spelled. <laughs> it's, it's spelled Uja, if anything. Would, would anyone? Would anyone go to or participate in? Yeah, sure. Why not? Hell yeah. No, it'd be scary. Isn't that the entire point? I mean, the point is you're supposed to connect to loved ones, right? Not always. You could go to a haunted location and try and connect with ghosts in that location as well. I absolutely do not believe in ghosts at all, but I've also read far too many books and seen too many movies with people doing that sort of thing (laughs) to go and try it. I do believe in ghosts, and I would still go and try it. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. You just have a chat to them. I'll just be lying there like, possess me! Possess me now! Please! Please do it! God damn it. I just spilled tea on my bed. Oh, beans. No! <laughs> Aaron, did he have an accident? <laughs> no, I just spilled green tea everywhere. Oh no! Green tea, that's so nice. Yeah, but not on my bed sheet <laughs> You like green tea, right? Yes, but not on my bed sheets. <laughs> one of one of my guilty pleasures is I like to sometimes with my mum, because my mum also really likes horror stuff, is I like to watch those stupid television shows where where they like talk about people who have been haunted in their houses and sometimes they do like reenactments of what happened and how they figured out they were haunted and in so many cases I'm just sitting there going yes and at this point I would move why have they not left yet <laughs> like as soon as the first you know oh, spooky thing happens so the one who would lie down and say possess me yeah but also if I if it, there's obviously a malicious ghost there I would just be like Okay, bye. I'll pack my bags and leave. Like I don't know what why you would stay there any longer. I'd just be got I, right. I'm staying at my sister's house until I can figure this out. Goodbye. But no, people willingly decide after having a ghost scratch them or slam a cupboard door or like throw something across the room, as these ghosts, as these shows claim they do. Then they're like, oh yes, I'm just gonna go go to bed. I'm just gonna sleep in the room where a goat yanked my leg and pulled me a out. goat. A goat got yanked my leg. And it's going for A goat, like, screamed. <laughs> moving, moving house necessarily requires selling your house. And who, who, who are you going to sell that house to? Just don't tell anyone that's a ghost. You just know. Or I, a I, goat. I don't necessarily mean, like, yes, you can move house, but also I would leave. I wouldn't go to bed that night in the same house. I'd go stay with someone and then maybe do an exorcism. I don't know. Okay. We had a haunted experience on Prompted when we were doing, I think Erin did a piece about ghost stories. Oh, I, I heard in my earphones or whatever a big ooh. And I thought it was you two mucking around. And when I went to edit it later, no one's mics had picked it up. Dun, 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 dun. Where did it come from? Has anyone here read The Haunting of Hill House? No. No, that's a show now, isn't it? It's, the, the show is completely different from the book, as in they've taken everything except the name. But in the book, it's basically four very intelligent people who all know how to take care of themselves, go to investigate a haunted house. They take every single precaution you can imagine, and everything still goes horribly wrong. It's terrifying. Oh my goodness. That is spooky. I was going to say, did you mean the tavern? But you guys have never taken a precaution in your lives. <laughs> Speaking of the tavern, yeah. that's a 
got a good world building-y thing. And Wilkie's got a good world building-y thing going on as well. I like the classic term of world building-y thing. It's very... That's the technical term, <laughs> technical Bella. Term, yeah. 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 Scientific term. That's actually the uh, the chemical formula for it. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, hello, everyone. I, I, I didn't introduce myself at the start of the show. I've been on one episode of Prompted before. My name's Wilkie. I don't write as much as these guys do, but I, I do a lot of creative stuff in the form of Dungeons and Dragons. I play, I run the games as the Dungeon Master, and doing so involves a lot of world building, creating the world that people will play the game in. Uh, a year and a half ago at this point, I started building a world that I wanted to play a D&D game in, because I, I just wanted to get all the tropes that I liked and just pack them into a big bundle that I could just be like, this is the D&D I want to play. Uh, that document is now 25,000 words long. And we're going to you're going to read it all now. I'm going <laughs> to read all of it now. No, um, I've, I've done a separate piece of world building based on the prompt. Uh, I do not claim to be an expert in world building. I just have some experience. So yes, uh, I looked at the prompt. You like dystopias, right? Yeah, but not living in them. And I thought it was really interesting because obviously it implies that the speaker is living in a dystopian society, but is at the same time aware that dystopian fiction is a thing. So it's a, a dystopian society that contains other fictional dystopian societies. I wanted to make a very self-referential dystopian world and like how would people think about dystopia differently if, if, if they sort of had this sort of primer uh, from like understanding dystopia from fiction before their world became dystopian. So the region we're going to be looking at contains three distinct areas. There is a walled city, unprotected outer ring of that same city, and then a desert which surrounds the city. I've done the most work on the walled city. Uh, the walled city is called Muropolis, which is the Latin for wall city. Uh, <laughs> that's how I make a lot of my names. Uh, I go to a, a website called uh, indifferentlanguages.com and I just look up a word and it gives me like 50 different languages words for that word. Muropolis is draconian and controlling. Uh, there is a, a ruling class and then the sort of proletariat underneath them. Some certain books, such as 1984 and Fahrenheit 451, are banned because uh, they're a bit too real. Uh, people are very much aware that their city is a lot like them. The city is broken up into districts, with, which regularly send representatives to a battle royale-style fight for resources for their district. Not only is this similar to The Hunger Games, it is based on The Hunger Games, because that book series exists in this world and people read it and thought they should do it for real. <laughs> Except no one actually kills each other anymore, because they realised that there was no rule saying you had to kill people. So there's now just a rota by which people from different districts just deliberately they, they just hide for the whole of the competition until one person appears to be the only one left and then they win and people just agree that they'll go on a rota rather than actually killing anyone. These fights are held about once a month whenever they get bored and the reward is easily enough for a couple of years if you ration it fairly, so people just decide who wins based on a rota. The people of the city and its leaders are fully aware that a successful revolution uh, is only one unifying hand gesture or short tune away. No one wants to be the one to start that because it would be too much effort and honestly <laughs> things are okay right now. Like, th things are pretty much fine. If you're not actively trying to cause a revolution, life is pretty okay. There is jobs, everyone has a job, steady pay, housing is the same for everyone. There's no homelessness. Because if you're homeless, they can't, the government can't spy on you from like the, the cool CCTV cameras hidden inside your mirror. 
So everyone has a home, you know, everyone is equal. Um, there's food readily available for everyone. If a little bland, you know, it's, oh, go and get your government issued protein bars or whatever, but like at least no one goes hungry. You guys can just jump in with like thoughts or questions at any time. I'm just rambling. This is all just bullet points. I love the Hunger Games that you managed to turn it into something that can is actually kind of safe. Because I, I'm a scout leader, and whenever I ask my scouts what they want to do for the program, there's always someone who goes, well, I want to play Hunger Games one night. And you say, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. So I love that in your worlds, you can do that. Uh, a lot of this is just like, what if the people who are like being oppressed under this dystopian regime were aware that they were living in a dystopia and could just find little workarounds rather than necessarily just starting a massive revolution. I thought I'd add a couple more types of dystopia. So that's like the government dystopia. Uh, the reason that there is a wall around Miropolis is uh, that the city around it is full of zombies. Of course it is. Of course it is. Um, uh, residents of the city uh, scavenge for weapons to fend off the hordes of the walking dead. Zombies can't actually be killed by guns, but out of respect... That would make it way too easy. Well, yeah, well, but out of respect for what the people with guns think should happen, they lie down when they get shot. Aww. Wilkie, I have a question. Yes. Are zombies playable characters in this RPG? I wasn't actually writing this with playing it as an RPG in mind, but I suppose, yeah, sure. Because I'm picturing it as one. Well. Yeah, if, if, if you can find the right system, then sure, you could play zombies. Just a group of zombies going around. Because I, I would then be immortal to bullets. I love the idea of the fact that people are aware they're in a dystopia. So I love the idea that maybe they're thinking, what stock character are they going to play? Like, I, I love the idea of just uh, someone who's already been through the Hunger Games being the Haymitch character, Haymitch. just giving people bad advice. <laughs> Yes, I, I, I didn't actually write it down for some reason, but I, I had this idea that the class structure in the <laughs> city outside the walls with the zombies, all the different roles within society would be named after characters from The Walking Dead. <laughs> so like, instead of having like the king or the duke or the mayor, there is the Grimes or whatever, or the, the Rick, is That's his name so Rick? Cool. I just love the idea of people, loads of people being like, I'm the protagonist of this and just having loads of chosen ones queuing up to fight the zombies. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the zombies just lie down when they get shot and then wait until, <laughs> and then wait until everyone's out of eyesight and then get up again and go and find somewhere new to loiter. And just no one notices that the same zombies just keep coming no. around the corner. <laughs> well, no one notices... There's Derek. No one notices in zombie TV shows when that happens. That's true. You know, there, mm. there aren't... They, they don't use stunt actors only once. That's you know? true, that's true. Did anyone... Oh, sorry, but that just reminded me of the thing that exists, which is the zombie reality TV show. Did anyone see that? Oh, I think I did. What? I saw it mentioned somewhere. Yeah, people lived in a zombie apocalypse and it was like Big Brother except they had to go out among a load of zombies to get supplies and stuff so they would fight zombies and have to go through mazes without the zombies seeing them and sometimes zombies would be bashing in their doors to break in as well. And then they'd have, they'd stage really graphic deaths whenever someone dies and I was like, what? But it's proper reality TV, it's mad. Yeah, like on, on, on a zombie TV show, the, the zombies that are getting hit with baseball bats and stuff, that's probably the same small cast of stunt doubles throughout the entire show. So yeah, uh, it's the, and also like there, there isn't an infinite supply of people who used to live in the city, so there isn't an infinite supply of zombies, so where do they keep coming from? Oh, it's because you can't actually kill them. 
and then the the third area this got like less detailed as i created more areas the uh the third area i tried to think of other dystopian uh like cultures that that i learned about and uh mad max came to my mind i was like oh that, that's like a different sort of scarcity so there's like, oh there's a scarcity of freedom there's a scarcity of uh not getting killed by zombies uh, and then in Mad Max, there's obviously a scarcity of water and of uh, and of petrol. Uh, so uh, those who choose to leave the zombie city find themselves in an arid desert, swarming with petrol head marauders who's own, who, who desire only one thing: water. There's plenty of it. Uh, before Miropolis went bad, it ran irrigation lines out here to create farmland. But it's fun to drive around in cool cars. So people pretend there isn't any water left. Like reverse June. Yes. How did you enjoy June, Erin? I'm halfway through June, Bella, and we'll have a discussion about it later. Okay. <laughs> we'll have an in-depth rant. Sounds fair. So yeah, that, that, that was, I sort of wrote that in the style of like a piece of flash fiction. Like I just, I had the idea and I just started typing. And like whenever an idea came mm. to my head, I just wrote it down. That's very much not how I do world building for Terra, my, my D&D world. But it's, it's a, a good place to start. Uh, a, a lot of terror was like in like little like bits and bobs in different documents. And I sort of brought them together, made like made them all make sense with each other. And sort of slowly I've built up this sort of cohesive world. That's really cool. Hell Do yeah. you yeah. add to your world a lot while you're playing through them? Y- yes, but it, it's, it's, it's sort of different. Uh, a, a lot of what I add to the document during a D&D game is stuff that I have made up on the fly. So someone will ask me a question that the document doesn't contain an answer to. I will make up the answer and then I will go and write it down because I I don't really care whether or not I've pre-planned it as long as it makes sense with everything else and as long as I remember to, you know, do the same thing the next time. So if someone asks me a question I haven't prepared for, I'm happy to make up an answer as long as I remember what that made up answer was. What are the three most important questions to ask yourself when building a world? So I, I think that, especially for a, a D&D game, because that, that's where my experience lies, the, I think the most important question could be, why do people in this world go on adventures? Like, why, why, is, why is adventuring a thing in this world? So, and th- th- that'll often be like the main conceit of the D&D campaign that you then run. So if we look at a podcast that's going on right now, uh, The Adventure Zone Graduation, the reason that D&D happens in that world is because... It's a world where heroes and villains are like, that's a job. Your job is to be a hero and you are then hired by like a city to have a cool fight in that city. And then I was like, well, I heard that city had a cool fight in it. So we go to the city. It's like a, like a tourism thing in there's another D and D podcast called Dungeons and Daddies, which is four dads from the real world get transported into the D and D world. And the reason that they go on adventures is because they're trying to rescue their sons who all got kidnapped. So thinking about why adventure is a thing in this world is, is good. Because if, if you create like this utopian society, why is anyone going to go out and deliberately go and find dangerous things to do? Like you're going you're gonna to be just fine. So it's about making a world that complements the characters that you have within it. Yes. You said three questions. <laughs> I think it's not, it's not so much a, a question, but like a, a, a piece of advice is that whenever you think of the answer to a question, write it down. So like <laughs> some some parts of this document are just tiny little like really short sentences that was just one idea I had. And I'll come back later when, you know, the 
when the spirit moves me and fill it out. But, you know, never let any idea go to waste. Put it in there. I like that. It's like the idea of writers should always keep a notebook around with them so they can write something down. I guess nowadays a good old boring phone, but I still carry a notebook. Because you're a romantic, Izzy. We, we all, we're all a bit romantic in that way and carry around notebooks. I just want to use a quill and write sonnets. My notebook looks like a um, Star Trek captain's log and Ooh. I just want you guys to know that that's so cool (laughs) that is very cool i have a a notebook with romeo and juliet drawings on it and i have a note another notebook that matches bella's notebook i have that notebook as well and i also have a little watercolor notebook so that i can do little watercolors of different things that help me be inspired i thought of another piece of world building advice okay tell us so at the very end of the document my big old document is a uh, I, I I put an appendix in there because I wanted it to be like a Tolkien book. It's so fancy. I've read it. It's good. Thank you. Everything that doesn't fit somewhere else just sits here, including my touchstones list, uh, which is just content that I think people should consume if they want to also consume this content. That goes from like the Forgotten Realms and Eberron, which are both D&D settings, to Doom Eternal, the game, and the film Treasure Planet. Treasure Planet. Nice. Treasure Planet is a brilliant film. But then there's also a vignettes section, which is, and that's sort of not my advice because of that is whenever you are trying to express something in like a world building context, so you're writing out like, this is how this social structure works. This is how this organization is run. If that doesn't sound, if that doesn't feel enough to you, then just do it through creative writing, do it normally. That's really smart. I love how D&D and creative writing feeling together. I think there's lots of writers who play D&D on the side, and I think that really helps with writing and characters and, yeah, definitely world building. Uh, so so part of the world building I've been doing recently, what I've been doing is I, I bought a book recently, and it's called Ancestry and Culture. And it's a, it's a really nice way of sort of just picking out uh, a couple of the little remnants of colonialism and racism that we're taking steps to to sort of separate modern D&D from that part of its past. And so yeah, I, I highly approve of Ancestry and Culture and you can find it on DriveThruRPG. There's a bundle at the moment where you can get like 500 quid's worth of stuff for £10 and it includes Ancestry and Culture, so get that. So Erin has created a list for us. Uh, yeah, sure. So I was making a list of art that's made by people of colour, so I'll basically just read through the list. This is not comprehensive, this is just the stuff that I was thinking of when I wrote it down. I looked up name pronunciations last night, so I have written the pronunciations down too. If I pronounce them wrong, I apologise. Please correct me if you guys know um, better ways of pronouncing them. Okay, so for plays, we've got Stoning Mary by Debbie Tucker Green. The Coloured Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough by Nato Jacquet Shongay. Uh, Serafina by Mongani and Gamer. Uh, that's the musical version, not the film, because I've not seen the film. Um, Hamilton by Lin Manuel Miranda. Sweat by Lynn Nottage. I See You by uh, Noma Dum and Esweeney. A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansbury. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom by August Wilson. And there are some devised plays, which are Siswe Banzi is Dead and The Island, um, which were devised by Athel Fugard, John Canny, and Winston in Shona, and Queens of Sheba by Jessica Al Hagen. For books, um, Mallory Blackman is one of my favourite authors, so Noughts and Crosses is very good, as his Boys Don't Cry, 
for younger readers, there's The Deadly Dare Mysteries and Thief, which I believe is for readers aged 8 to 10. Also, The Colour Purple by, by Alice Walker and I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou are also very good. If you're looking for Netflix series with Person of Colour leads, October Faction and Star Trek Discovery both have those. A lot of the things I've just read out do have content warnings. Um, the most, the ones that you probably do need to look up content warnings for would be The Coloured Girls, Serafina, and probably Noughts and Crosses, because that's mm. got some themes in it. So please do be responsible when you're choosing what to read or watch. Awesome. Thanks, Erin. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to add all of those to my reading list. So the next prompt for next week is going to be a little bit different because next week it is the last show in the series. Bella, do you want to talk about next week's prompt? So I do a lot of digital art and I decided that it might be... Well, I basically asked you guys if it would be a good idea to maybe ask you to for some character traits, character features, and maybe like send me three or three or four of them and then I can combine them and create a character without e- without e- any of us apart from me obviously knowing what the other person has sent so it'll be a bit of a surprise character at the end and then we use that character as a prompt rather than a word prompt so that our piece has to involve the character that I've drawn and I'll post the character on Instagram so that everyone can see it and if they want to have a go uh, also including a character in a piece that would be really awesome uh so yeah that's what the prompt next week is it's going to be a drawing prompt Ooh, exciting i'm really excited for that yeah and we'll have alex on next week as well and we're going to have a piece from at jamie our author next week as well so it's going to be a really great series finale but that is about all we've got time for for this show so i just want to say thank you to the prompt provider for this week which is erin and erin's dad and i want to say um thanks to everyone who's written for this show thanks so much to wilkie for coming on to the show and thanks so much to you guys for listening for more prompts and writing go to our instagram which is at prompted writing podcast if you want writing advice or you want to share your responses to any of our prompts just dm us you can find us on anchor fm which distributes us to spotify google podcasts and many more thanks again for listening bye 10 9 8 6 Seven. F- five. <laughs> 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 <laughs>